Well, good morning to everyone. It's good to have everybody here. Uh, and we've got quite a few with us this morning. We've got most of the home crowd with us. I know some still aren't able to be either because of uh, their uh, sensitive situations with the pandemic that's going on or perhaps work or traveling. But we've got a lot of the home crowd here this morning, supplemented by many visitors. And we appreciate having you here. Uh, Some of you may be just traveling through the area. It's good to have you with us. Some are visiting a grandchild, a new grandson, and also his parents. Uh, And it's good to have you all here. It's very good to have the Jaspers back with us. I know they've been trying and trying to make this day happen. And it's finally arrived, and I know we're all just as excited to have them back as they are to be back here as well. And to get to meet, albeit from an unfortunate and undesired distance, Mr. Alexander. It's good to have you guys here. Um... Brian mentioned to me when I was standing in the back during the first few songs how nice it was to look out on the crowd this morning and see all of you here. Um, And then Jared pulls up Nearer Still Nearer, which is already one of my favorite songs. Um, But then to have all of these voices, a couple of those tenors that we musicians really love to have in the audience as well and fill out those chords. But to hear that song... With that depth of of, um, spiritual thought in it, uh, sung by all of you this morning, I would quite happily chuck the whole outline and just have a singing this morning and just get to enjoy all of your voices praising God together. Um, We won't do that uh, unless I get a whole bunch of really energetic nods of yes, please. (laughs) Um, But it's it's just really nice to have everyone here. And um, thank you. As any congregation does, we've had you know a lot of folks move into town over the past several years, and a lot of folks move out of town over the last several years. Um, we've had uh, members of this congregation that we deeply love that have gone to move to live in different states, um, and those and we're glad for them and the new opportunities in their life. But they're, they're valuable pieces of this congregation that we miss. Uh, and I must say, getting to sit here and sing a song like "Nearer Still Nearer" with with all of you here, visitors included. Um, just kind of filled some of that that hole that's that's there, missing those folks. Uh, it's just really nice to have everybody here. This morning, I want us to study the parable of the wise and foolish builders and the houses that they built. Um, you can find this parable twice in the Gospels. One of those places is in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. It's the last few verses of of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the text I want us to use for this morning's study, but don't turn there yet. I know some of you are starting. Don't turn there just yet. We need to start in the book of Proverbs, namely chapter 10. So if you'd like to turn somewhere, Proverbs 10 is where we'll be. Matthew 7 is the first place that you find this parable. The second place you find essentially the same parable is over in Luke's Gospel in chapter 6. Verses 46 and following, during the somewhat less familiar Sermon on the Plain instead of the Sermon on the Mount. Something that Jesus does in many of his parables that is a, a, a element of the parables, a layer to them that I haven't always taken the time to appreciate, is that he works with imagery already found in Old Testament passages that would have been well known to his audience. Uh, For example, if you think of some of the parables, those true-to-life stories with the spiritual lessons within them, you think of some of the practical imagery uh, that that Jesus employs 
farming imagery, for example, that comes straight out of what would be to them familiar Old Testament passages, such that not only is the idea of farming uh, familiar to an agrarian society, but Jesus' audience of first century Jews would hear those parables ringing with overtones of the Old Testament. I want to look this morning at first at some of the Old Testament background to the story that Jesus tells of the wise and foolish builders before we come to it, and then we will. So, essentially the story of the wise and foolish builder is, of course, one of contrast. And it contrasts the wise way and the foolish way. And in the Old Testament, there is really one book above all others that has that very same theme of a contrast between what is foolish and what is wise, and that is the book of Proverbs. So the book of Proverbs has a lot of teaching like this. You can almost randomly turn to any part of the book of Proverbs, look over the page, and find some of this teaching. So to give you a few examples, in Proverbs chapter 10, the first verse, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. If you want to turn a few pages over to Proverbs 15, verse 20, it's very similar. Proverbs 15, verse 20. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Either on that same opening or the previous page in Proverbs 14, verse 3, says, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. This idea of the one who lives foolishly reaping the penalty for that, but the one who is wise reaping the benefit of that. A few pages forward in Proverbs 21. Notice what verse 20 says. Proverbs 21, verse 20. It says, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Have you ever seen someone who lives wisely with their funds, whether they have a great deal of them or not? And they oftentimes seem to have more than those who are constantly spending, constantly buying, and constantly devouring their wealth and their possessions. So, Over and over, the book of Proverbs contrasts what it is that becomes of the wise person versus the outcome for the foolish, sometimes just the fool. It's not only the book of Proverbs that that talks with language like this, though. It's a pretty common theme pretty much all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes the words like wisdom and foolishness are the ones that are directly chosen. Sometimes they're just simply implied. Um, If you would like to leave a marker there in Proverbs, because we're going to come back to that book in a moment, and turn with me toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you find a similar uh, sort of contrast employed by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, I want to start reading in verse 15. Deuteronomy 30, 15 says, Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, 
by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart's heart excuse me, turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, then I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to enter and possess. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So I wanted to show you uh, with these verses, first of all, that the way Jesus brings the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion here, with the, the parable of the wise and foolish builders, with this contrast between two ways, the wise and the foolish, and then two results, life or death, is very much in line with what Israel had been hearing for centuries from God and and from the the people he sent to teach them. Not only that, in the Old Testament, often the idea of building is used to represent whether we're going to do something that is pleasing to God and and meets with his approval, or whether we're going to undertake a a project, an attitude, a way of life that, that does not meet with his approval. So I want to show you a couple examples of that. Uh, Back to the book of Proverbs, in uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Proverbs 12, verse 7. I want you to think about this passage in connection with the wise and foolish builder over in Matthew 7. Proverbs 12, verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. If you look over to Proverbs 24 and verse 3, again, think about this in connection with the story that Jesus tells of the wise and foolish builder. Proverbs 24, verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious And pleasant riches. You see that idea continuing even of the oil and the treasure that fills the house of the wise. So even here in the book of Proverbs, not only do you have the the same contrast between wisdom and foolishness, between life and death, but you also have got the the same imagery of, of a building. The one who builds wisely, the one who is righteous, versus the one who builds foolishly and is evil. Then one final element for you before we get to uh, Matthew chapter 7 specifically. If you'll recall, in the story as Jesus tells it, think of what happens to both of the houses that are built by the wise and the foolish. Both of them experience the, the huge storm and the floods that come with it. In the Old Testament, you find that same sort of imagery of storms that are either withstood or which overflow and overcome those who are wicked. So to give you another example, again from the book of Proverbs, look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. Proverbs 10, verse 25. 
Going back to the first chapter that we started with uh, a few minutes ago. Chapter 10, verse 25 says, When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more. They don't survive the storm. But the righteous is established forever. In the next few verses of this same proverb, or of this chapter of Proverbs, it stays with the same theme. So verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. So not only do you see this uh, sort of language or the, the previous elements that we're familiar with in the parable of the, uh, the wise and the foolish builder, that of wisdom versus foolishness, life versus death, and then an idea of building, but also this idea of a storm coming over both. Now, you see this language here in the book of Proverbs, which has that strong emphasis on, on that entire idea of wise versus foolish and the results of that. Prophets also use the same language as well. I want to take you to one passage that's particularly important for our study this morning. It's in Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13. In Ezekiel 13 and verse 10, I want you to notice what the prophet says about false prophets. In Ezekiel 13 and verse 10. Verse 10, he says, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, the prophets smear it with whitewash. By the way, you recognize that language also, don't you? From some of Jesus' later teaching. Verse 11, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain And you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? What about all that pretty whitewash and the paint that you put on it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full End, And I will break down the wall that you've smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. So I wanted to take you through all those passages as we're getting started and aiming towards a chapter in the Gospels, because a lot of the elements of the parable of the wise and foolish builder, as Jesus tells it, are elements that would be familiar to Israel. So the idea of of wise and foolish and the contrast there. The idea of a building and a project and an undertaking which either survives or doesn't survive. The idea of storms coming and crashing against that particular project, that person, um, that, that nation, that people. 
And then the righteous who endure and remain while the wicked are overthrown. All of those are familiar elements. And we may not be as familiar with the Old Testament as most Jews were. That's likely the case because for them, every week they heard it read in the synagogue. So they would pick up on those illusions, meaning it is beneficial for us to be thinking about those as well. And that's why I wanted to take the time to, to trace the thread of, of this, familiar, um, this familiar fabric of the Old Testament that Jesus weaves into his own teaching. So with all of that in mind, let's come over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. When you're looking at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, what this section of Matthew 7 and this, uh, this portion of Scripture amounts to is effectively the sermon's invitation. We have a, a tradition uh, of ending each sermon with an invitation where we call people to make a decision, to think about the things that we've been studying and, and, and make a choice based upon what we've studied and how they're living. If you'll give me just a moment, I'm having a Charlie horse in my ribs. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> I take ibuprofen before coming here in the morning just for this particular eventuality, and it is failing me. If you see me twitch more than normal, that's what it is. So we've got a tradition of ending our sermons with an invitation, asking people to think about the things that we've studied and think about the way that they're living and consider whether or not there's, there's change to be made. There's action to be had. Certainly if a person is not a Christian, to consider the, the, the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins. To consider the price paid for them. To think about the, the teachings from God's word about how someone is supposed to live in order to be pleasing to him. And, and make the changes that are necessary. If a person is a Christian and they're not living faithfully as one, to make the changes that are necessary. And really, the, the body of the Sermon on the Mount ends back up in verse 12, where Jesus says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then what he's going to do is go into his conclusion, which calls people to make a decision. So, for example... In verses 13 and 14, there are two gates before you. One that's wise and chosen by many because it's easy. And another that is narrow and requires much more effort to pass through. But even though the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that's the way that leads to life. In verses 15 through 20, there are two kinds of teachers. And you're going to have to make a choice about how you're going to respond to the teaching that I'm giving you versus the teaching you get from others. In verses 21 through 23, the choice is between hearing the words of Jesus and actually doing them. So you can't just call Jesus Lord. You have to live for him as your Lord. This thing won't quit. <laughs> in verses 24 through 27, then you get to the main text that we have for this morning. And the choice between building wisely on the words of Jesus or building foolishly on anything else. And there's a key word that runs throughout the last three of these four sections. 
Um, that is the Greek for to do. It's not necessarily translated with those words each time in our English versions, though. So in verses um, 17 through 19, the call to do is represented with producing fruit. In verses 21 and 22, we are to do the will of God and other works in his name. And then put into practice Jesus' teaching in verses 24 and 26. That's the way the verb appears in the final section and our our parable this morning. So in verses 24 and 26, both men are described as, as hearing Jesus' words. But it's only the first that does them. So the conclusion is clear. Those who have heard Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, those who are present, those who have now heard what he has to say, they're not going to receive any benefit from what they've been listening to unless they also put it into practice. So this parable is the final portion of of Jesus' invitation, his way of bringing this entire Sermon on the Mount to a dramatic conclusion in terms of calling the masses to make a decision. You've been sitting here, you've been listening, and now you've got a choice to make. Either to listen and go home, or to listen and obey. Either to obey my words or to dismiss them. And then to explain to them what the the consequences of either choice is going to be, you have this parable. So verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house And it fell, and great was the fall of it. One of the big questions that I would ask you uh, in the course of this story as Jesus tells it, as he talks about the idea of wind and rain and storms beating against these houses, and then the two outcomes of that, one of the questions you have to consider is, what do you think Jesus is talking about when he talks about these storms and rains? What would be the the possible understandings for what Jesus is thinking about when he says a storm is going to come against your house and the outcome is going to all be on how you built it, what you founded it on? Um, One possible option is just the hardships of life that come crashing against us sometimes. So everyone goes through those. We talk about enduring a stormy period in our life. Um, there are those who are, are going to be able to, to stand up and withstand those. And then there are those who will not. And there are a great number of passages about this idea. If you wanted to look for Old Testament background, for example, for that kind of thinking of the storms of life representing its hardships. Um, Nahum 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 71, verse 3, be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And then um, Isaiah 25, and verse 4, 
For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. So that idea of of storms in life crashing against us and God being our refuge, God being our firm foundation in those storms, that is an idea you can find all throughout the Bible. So certainly one legitimate way of understanding what Jesus says here in Matthew 7. But I would like to offer to you an alternative understanding than just the storms of life, the troubles that life brings. Um, that might be meant by this language of a storm coming against your house. And that is not the, the, the day-to-day or even substantial hardships that we may face, but the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Back in Ezekiel chapter 13, remember that was the whole point of, of that passage. Thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. There shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall. So that's God's judgment That's going to come in this particular instance on the false prophets being described in terms of storms. It's not the only example of that sort of thing. And I'll tell you, it hasn't always been, but that's the idea I lean towards. Because if you think back to his very first parable, that sort of explains all the other parables, namely the parable of the sower. The very reason Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 in explaining why he teaches in parables and using it as an explanation for why he does so is basically to make the point about the purpose of his message and ministry in comparison to Isaiah's is that they're very similar. God had told Isaiah, I want you to go and preach to these people, even though they have eyes to see and, and, and refuse to and ears to hear and they won't listen. Their hearts refuse to understand. So basically, Isaiah, I'm sending you to preach judgment to them. And the very coming of Christ and the challenges and the demands that he makes become a time of judgment for Israel and for everyone else. Are you going to accept or reject God's Messiah? And there are consequences for either option that you may choose. And that falls in line quite well with with Matthew 7, Because even though there are times when the Bible does describe the adversities of life in terms of rains and floods and storms, especially in the Psalms of David, where he says he feels like he's overwhelmed by the storms that are coming against him. In the prophetic books, however, it's very commonly used as the idea of God's impending judgment. I'll give you another example in Isaiah 8, if you'd like to turn there. I'll give you time to turn there. Isaiah 8. There's a crisis that faces the nation of Judah when northern Israel has allied itself with Syria and they both attack Judah. And Ahaz, king of Judah, has a choice to make. Is he going to trust in God or look to Assyria for help? He chooses Assyria. So look in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 5. 
The Lord spoke to me again and said, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its, all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, Emmanuel. So it's this flooding torrent of judgment that's going to come because the people refuse to trust in the Lord and instead trust in man during this day of adversity. It is certainly true that listening and obeying the teachings of Jesus help you to withstand the, the storms of life as we talk about. Frankly, I don't know how people withstand them without the teachings of Jesus. We talked about this in this morning's class about being able to maintain an eternal sense of hope despite what life brings against you because of Jesus. So when you are listening and putting your trust in him and you lose your job or someone you love becomes ill or a relationship begins to crumble and you are hanging on to the Lord and to his teaching then it helps you to act appropriately to the glory of God in those circumstances. It helps you to withstand those things. So there is no question that listening to the teachings of Jesus help me to stand when I'm founded on the rock that is the Lord when the storms of life come against me. But contextually... I think it better fits the flow of Matthew 7, better fits the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, that he has in mind something more specific than that. If you listen to me and you do what I say, then when the time of judgment comes, you'll be able to stand. That's the choice he's given them, right? Are you going to listen to me or discard what I have to say? He's just been talking, right, about the the wide path versus the narrow one. So there are those who, who, because they don't listen to me or do what I say, they're going to be overcome and they're going to be destroyed because of that. And if you think about this sermon, you think about its context, it makes sense that at the end of his his major lesson, Jesus says, here are your options. And you need to know these will be the results, the consequences of whether you obey me or you don't obey me. And I suggest that to you. I, I think that's what he's trying to teach there. It's very common in the religious world in general, uh, a common message that people hear all the time to basically say, if you want to receive salvation, then what you need to do is say in your heart this prayer, ask Jesus to be your savior, and then you are saved. And sometimes what gets added on to that is that you are forever saved. And there is nothing that you can do to ever lose your salvation. Very standard, common kind of message. I mentioned to you last week a study I'm having with an individual who believes exactly that. And it's not the first one. Now, not everybody in the the broader evangelical world thinks that way. Um, We are not alone in believing that that just does not jive with what Jesus teaches. That sort of of easy believism. It is awfully hard, I think, to square that kind of thinking 
with the conclusion of this sermon, isn't it? You've got to listen to what I say and do it. And if you don't, there's going to be a catastrophic judgment that washes you away. If you don't do what I tell you to do. So perhaps one of the useful ways that we can talk to some of our friends who may come from that sort of a background is to reach out to them with scriptures like these. Some of the most fundamental teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. And simply ask them, how does what you teach people line up to what Jesus himself preaches right here? Because what Jesus is preaching right here is not that message. What Jesus preaches is you've got to do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, then there is judgment coming. And it's going to be a tremendous one. And we might also remind ourselves of the sayings that Jesus has in mind when he says, if you don't hear these sayings of mine and do them. It's like what he said back in chapter 5 when he says things like, you are to bless those who persecute you and do good to those who do evil to you. It's one of the things he's saying, that if you don't do this, there's a sweeping judgment that's going to come upon you. That's tough. It's not an easy thing to do. When he says things like, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother can be liable to judgment. That's not easy to, to take heed of constantly. When he says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her commits adultery with her in his heart. Who just looks commits adultery of the heart. Or forgive others if you expect to be forgiven. My point in, in looking back at some of the examples of his sayings that he's expecting his hearers to follow is that there is a proper and right application for us to make of this story that Jesus tells, the parable of the wise and foolish builder. And there's a proper application for us to make both in calling our friends to a proper way of life and then also making sure that we're living one as well. So there's the, the, the call to our friends to take Jesus seriously, to take his word seriously. Discipleship is not about you saying one little prayer. It's not even about making sure you get immersed for a minute and then that's all you've ever got to do. It's about following Jesus. And there are consequences whether you follow him or you don't. Whether you build your house, your life, your conduct on the rock or not. But then also, I don't want us to forget the message either. If I'm going to claim to be a Christian and Jesus' disciple, and I'm going to claim that I follow him, then these difficult sayings are things that I must do too. It's a very sobering passage, I think. To look at the sayings of Jesus and consider, am I living them or not? Because if I'm not, then I'm building my life on the sand. And judgment's going to come, and it's going to wash over me, and I'm going to pay the price. I hope very much this morning that I and we listen to the sayings of Jesus, and not just hear them, but do them.
May God help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And may God help us when we talk with our friends who may be coming from from some of those backgrounds where they don't appreciate the, the commands of Jesus and they have sort of let themselves off the hook when it comes to, to living for the Lord. May we first set the proper example for them before we then set the truth of Jesus' teaching before them. If this morning you're not a Christian, then we call you to make the choice between the, the, the narrow way and the, the, the wider path. That leads to destruction. We call you to make the choice to to do the more challenging thing and be a disciple of Jesus and live for him and build your house on the rock. So that God can be that stronghold, both in the storms of life and the storm of his judgment that will one day come down. Hope very much you'll make the decision to do that. If we can help you in any way, be pleasing to God this morning. Please let us know while we stand and sing.